Brother Folger, come on up and preach to us. Is that the shortest uh, opening of a service you've ever seen? Amen. Thank you so much. Well, as I said this morning, it's an honor to be with you all tonight, and thank you so much for being here on Sunday night. I, I love Sunday night church. It's just, uh, in, at least from our place, it is kind of what we call family night, and it's good for the church family to be together and just kind of kind of just thank the Lord for all his blessings throughout the day and throughout our past week, and as we're starting a new week, a good place to be for us. And so, thank you for being here. As your pastor said, uh, I am working with a ministry called Spiritual Leadership Asia. You, if you were here this morning, you saw the video. And uh, primarily, uh, we're dealing with folks that are in the 1040 window. We described that this morning as being a kind of a box, a little kind of a, a, a I guess, uh, a weird type of box, but it's a, a box nonetheless in which people live. And uh, so let me just give you a little bit of the back story in my life. I, um, I, I graduated um, in, at the church school in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and had surrendered my life for missions and uh, went off to college and prepared my, my life to go to the mission field. So when we came back to the church staff after college, we were kind of invited on to do an internship thinking that we we're going to end up in the mission field. And so when I had been on the staff for about a year or so, the church made it possible for me to go to Asia. I had a real burden to be a part of something in Asia and uh, pr- primarily was looking at, a, at the country of Singapore and I'd spent really three weeks there, and uh, my wife wasn't able to go with me. Uh, she was carrying our second son, Peter, at that point. And so it was kind of a trip, a solo trip for me, just kind of get my feet on the ground and see what was going on there. And uh, when I got there, of course, I could see a great need, just a tremendous uh, opportunity as far as just an open door of, of ministry and great place where the, the Word of God needed to be preached. But I walked away with just a lack of peace that that was God's plan for our life. And, and I was really disappointed because I, I just assumed that was what God was going to have for me. And I came back and I struggled for a while trying to figure it out. Okay, Lord, what really do you have? And sometimes we just have this idea, well, you know, we surrender for something. That's what God's going to do in our life. And you prepare for that. And you just kind of assume that's what God is doing in your life. And so anyway, uh, after a while, just kind of uh, figured out that God was not asking us to do that at that moment. And I just... I kind of assumed then that I would probably end up leaving the staff at the church where I was working and and probably at some point uh, pastoring a church. So uh, I went and talked to the founding pastor, Brother Thompson, who's been here to preach for you, and we sat down in his office one day, and he said, well, you know, as I'm thinking about it. He said, I didn't think that was really God's plan for your life, but I couldn't tell you that. You had to figure it out for yourself. And so he just kind of confirmed for me that, you know, I was kind of moving in the right direction. And then he said, well, if you want to stay, just go ahead and stay. Well, uh, when I had been there for about five years, he started talking to me about becoming his successor there at the church. In other words, to work with him, to prepare, to become uh, the, the man who would take the church after him. And then God began to put things together in my mind. I, I didn't see myself doing that, but God obviously did. So, uh, again, a total of 41 years on the staff. The last 24, I, I served as the pastor. In 2017, God began to stir my heart, and I didn't know, again, exactly what it, God was doing I just knew that he was saying my time in pastoring that church was up. And so in the 2018 conference that you saw, God just really spoke to my heart saying, this is it. This is what I want you to give your, your time to. And I thought it was quite interesting that I tried to go to Asia uh, when I was really, really young. And God said, no, you're not going. And then here towards the what I call the last quarter of my life, God is saying, okay, now you can go do some of that stuff in Asia that you wanted to do before. So, you know, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And it's been a wonderful thing to watch God lead step by step in, in our lives and in what he's doing. And I would ask that you just pray for this ministry. Uh, we are seeing, um, you know, I, I grew up in an independent Baptist church, and, 
And uh, some of you that are longtime members here, you may remember back in the 1960s, as I was a kid growing up, we had a lot of missionaries coming through saying, we're going to the Philippines, we're going to the Philippines, we're going to the Philippines. And it was after World War II, and there was a wide open door there, and men were going. And, and a lot of solid works were established there in the Philippines, a lot of independent Baptist work in a country that was prim- primarily Roman Catholic. But uh, many of these Filipinos began to respond, and... Of course, that's a generation ago, and those men, many of them have passed off the scene, and what they've left behind are national pastors who have really fairly significant works with Bible colleges who are training their own. And the Filipino people are literally traveling across this 1040 window. They can get a visa that I can't get, and, and they can kind of blend into the culture where I won't blend into it, and, and uh, they're able to do the work that I can't do. And they're, what they're asking is just for help. And what we're finding is that some of these folks have been doing missionary work for 20 years, and they've established... Again, nationals that they've trained who are now leaving the training and going and planting other churches. And so that's kind of who we're working with is this network of people that God has put in place through a, a long series of events. And I believe preparing for this last, uh, this what I call last push. Now, I don't know how much time we have left. I truly believe that we're on the, the cusp for the second coming of Jesus Christ, that soon he, very soon he's going to return. But, but I do believe that until he comes, he wants us to remain very active and very engaged. And it's not a time for the church to relax. It's not a time for us to take our, take our foot off the throttle. It's time for us to keep pushing on. And so as God opens these doors and these opportunities, we as churches, we need to seize the moment and ask the Lord to, to really do something. You saw in the video this morning a man by the name of Naranjan Sundaraj. Uh, Naranjan was born in Sri Lanka and... Uh, became a, a nominal Christian. I say nominal Christian. He was born again, but really didn't know a lot about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And just through a series of events in his life, he almost literally died as a result of a terrorist attack on a bank that he was working in and uh, uh, came within inches of, of dying. And while I was on his back during that year of recovery, it was when God really began to work in his life about doing something of substance with his life. And he was working for American Express, and after he recovered, they began to continue to promote him. But he said, instead of just working for business, I'm going to use my business to see what God will have me to do with my business. And so he began to cr- travel across the 1040 window and was literally uh, elevated to become the vice president of American Express for all of Asia. So he traveled literally across the 1040 window, the length and breadth of it, and saw while there was closed countries where people were just, you know, they weren't open to missions, he found within those countries people that, if you would talk to them about Jesus, they wanted to know. And so part of why we're doing what we're doing is because Naranjan has prayed with other people who are in that area, praying that God would just open up a door and, and bring light to this dark, dark, dark part of the world. And so if you pray with us, again, we're praying that the, the COVID situation would lift so we can get there and begin to do some of the, the training that we need to do. But we also need to make connections with, with folks. And I shared with uh, your pastor this morning, and I think maybe in the, in the Sunday school class where we were, that we started at the beginning of this year not really supporting any nationals. And when I say supporting, we're not talking about full support, but partial support for them. And so we, didn't, we weren't working with anyone financially. But we decided that we wanted to really focus on that. So as we're out raising support and churches take on this ministry, it's not coming to us. It's not coming to support us or an organization as churches partner with us now, we're funneling that money right into the 1040 window and connecting it with Asian nationals. So we started with nothing, and now we're supporting over 52 at $50 a month. And so as God continues to help us to raise support, that's our intention to continue just to pour that money into these people who are there working in, in places, again, where you could never, perhaps, if, even if you could visit, you wouldn't be able to stay very long or to 
to, to, to do much of a, a long type of term work, but these folks are there doing that. So again, if you just pray with us about that, and then we're also now launching what we're calling the 1040 Bible Project, in which we're trying to uh, work with uh, the publication of scriptures in flood this area with Bibles and uh, asking God to help us to connect with people uh, who can help us do that job. And so again, thank you so very much for the opportunity. I appreciate your pastor, appreciate this church. It's my honor to be here. And I'm just going to say to you, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but you are a very blessed people to have the facilities that God has given to you and, and for this work that God is doing right here in Sydney, Ohio. And so thank you for being here again on Sunday night. Take your copy of God's Word. Let's go together, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. And we'll begin reading in just a moment, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 12. Somewhat, perhaps, to some of in here tonight, a very familiar portion of Scripture, but I believe there's a message that God wants us to have here. And so, again, I would encourage you just to follow along as God enables us to uh, preach this, this passage. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum. And after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. And, of course, that's a reference to Jesus. Verse number 2. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they'd broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say this to, the, uh, to the sick of a palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that she may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose up, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for the opportunity Lord, to be here at Grace Baptist Church, and thank you for Pastor Alter, and thank you for these good people that make up this congregation. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to, again, meet tonight, here at this hour, to open up your word and ask you, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us in this place. Lord, I pray that you'd help me tonight to be a blessing to the folks, and I pray that your word, Lord, would help us. And Lord, as the applications are brought forth, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit of God would apply that truth to our individual lives, Lord, as the need is there. Thank you again, Lord, for your kindness to me today. And to all of us, we're very grateful. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned this morning uh, when I was speaking uh, to the class that when, my, when I was a boy growing up, my dad was a truck driver. And uh, from the time that I could remember, uh, when I was old enough to remember what my dad did, that's what he did. He got into a truck and uh, really was a, a terminal that wasn't far from her house, but he'd drive his car over to the terminal, pick up his truck, and then he'd drive his truck out of town. When I say out of town, not great distances, but outside the city limits of Cleveland and to some of the outlying areas. And 
and uh, he worked for a company called Middle Atlantic. When it was about uh, maybe sixth grade or so, uh, one day uh, we got word that my dad had been injured on the job. And uh, again, you know, it, seemingly it wasn't a tremendous in, uh, in injury, at least initially so. Um, my understanding is that uh, when he was making a delivery, it was in a place called Leary, Ohio, which is on the west side of, of Cleveland, so it kind of sets out uh, towards that uh, farther west side of the greater Cleveland area. And he was delivering to a golf ball factory. It's a day like today, and the snow had fallen. And uh, as he was getting out of his truck and getting ready to step down on the solid surface, evidently someone had dropped the golf ball, and he was unaware of it. And so instead of coming down even on the ground, his, his foot hit that golf ball, and he wrenched his ankle or turned his ankle. And probably everybody in this room, if you played any sports at all, you probably have turned an ankle at a time. And, uh, man, you get a, a bad sprain, and it's, sometimes it's worse than a break because it's just so difficult to deal with. And so by the end of the day, his ankle was very, very swollen, and they had to send somebody out to get the truck. And so they brought him back uh, to Cleveland. And back in those days, when you had an injury like that, you didn't go to see the emergency room or you didn't go to see your own doctor. You had to go to see the company doctor. And there was a, a particular company doctor who had been employed by this his, his trucking company to see people in, who had had injuries. And so he, he began to see this guy. And at a point, this man who really was really not much of a doctor made a decision. And he made an incision in my dad's ankle. And he took a, a, a piece of gauze and stuck it in there, kind of thinking that somehow that was going to help him. I don't know what his thinking was. It had to do with, evidently he thought there was some infection there. This would somehow wick it away. And anyway, to make a long story short, things got went from bad to very, very bad. And I remember as a boy walking into the room where my dad was, and I could see the beads of sweat, and he was in great pain. And, and there wasn't anything much I could do. I was just a kid, maybe, you know, 10, 11 years old, and there wasn't anything I could do to help my father other than just, you know, seeing what he's going through and, and just praying. And, and for some reason, he just refused to see any other doctor. I don't know why that is. I guess he's just stubborn like a lot of men are. I'm just not going to go see anybody else. And through a series of events, my dad has a twin brother, and uh, through a series of events, my, his twin came to town, saw how bad his brother was, and literally picked him up and put him in the car and carried him and said, you're going to go see another doctor. Got him into that doctor, and that doctor took one look at him and said, Mr. Folger is very, very sick. You get him to the hospital. And he was met by a specialist who met him and analyzed it, and basically he told my mother and my uncle at that point, he said, this man is so bad, if we don't get the right antibiotics into him within 24 hours, he's probably going to die. And what we didn't know is my dad had developed a bone disease called osteomyelitis, and uh, it, his bone between his ankle and his knee had become so infected that it literally became like butter. And had he tried to step on that, it would have literally just collapsed. And he was just in tremendous pain. And I'm thinking to myself, if my uncle hadn't stepped into my dad's life at that moment, if God hadn't brought him into my dad's life, my, my life probably as a, as a child would be much different. I would have grown up without a father because my father pro probably would have died. But it took somebody literally to pick my father up and carry him to someone who could help him. Well, in our text, of course, we're reading about a man who is powerless to help himself, isn't he? Uh, the Bible says that he's of the palsy and it's a story about a man who can't really get himself from place to place. He's dependent on other people to do that for him, to pick him up and carry him where he can't go. Again, we're not told if this man's a quadriplegic or a paraplegic, but it's pretty clear he can't walk. And so however he can get along, he gets along. But he's 
picked up. And would you notice that he faces some obstacles, even as his friends step into his life to try to help him to get to Jesus, who will help him in his life. He's facing these obstacles, but his friends refuse to give up. So let's kind of walk through this passage together tonight. Let's see some things that I believe will be a help to us. Notice, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we we see what I call the fame of Jesus is really on display for us in this particular couple of verses. The Bible says in verse number number 1, chapter 2, and again. And that word again, sometimes we just kind of read those words and really don't think about what is really going on because it's just a common word, again. But it's really a reference that something's happened previous, right? So as we go back to chapter 1, we understand that uh, chapter 1 really shares with us the opening of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, we understand, if we've been saved any length of time at all, to realize that Jesus, of course, is not just any man. He's the Son of God. He's born unique. He's born of the Virgin. No man's involved in his conception. And, and he is God in the flesh. He's here to bring redemption to humanity. And so uh, we see the opening in, in chapter 1 of his, of his ministry. And he kind of starts, Mark kind of starts with Jesus stepping out of relative obscurity, kind of as an adult, beginning his public ministry baptized by John the Baptist and presented as the Savior of the world. And so Jesus is introduced as the, the and, and his ministry in chapter 1 is really a, a ministry of word and deed, great deeds, supernatural deeds that would state to all that would behold him that, man, this is more than just a man. Look, look if you would, at chapter 1. Look at what happens in verse number 21. And they went into Capernaum. So let's stop for just a moment and just simply say that Capernaum becomes a kind of a home base for Jesus it was the home of Peter, James, and John. It was where their, their fishing business was really. It was the, the, where they were located and doing business. And so Capernaum becomes kind of the, if you would, the northern region. It was the kind of the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. And so he comes here, and verse number one, 21 of chapter 1 says, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Look at verse number 22. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I've had the opportunity, and many of you have had the opportunity, and you're blessed because your pastor is a, a gifted speaker, but, you know, for someone to take the Word of God and open it up and rightly divide it, and, and for folks to really grow in ministry, that's an amazing thing. But can you imagine what it was like to hear Jesus preach? For him, to, the, the, the one who was the living Word, the, the embodiment, so to speak, the Word living on, in the flesh to take the Word and, and expound upon it? Of course they're, they're astonished. They've never heard anybody be able to take the Bible and, with authority and power and speak like that. And so they're overwhelmed by the ability this man has to communicate. Well, notice what happens then in verse 23. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this, and what new doctrine is this? For with authority he commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Yeah, they've never seen anything like this. Your pastor mentioned, mentioned this morning that, hey, there was the, the, during the life of Jesus, there are these miracles that are going on. So for Jesus to do these miracles, one right after another, and uh, for folks to behold them, of course it's going to make a stir. Now look what happens in verse number 28 or 27. They were all amazed 
in so much they questioned among themselves. Look, verse 28, and immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region of Galilee. So this idea that, hey, there's something going on here. Now, again, we're familiar because we're looking at the overview of his life. As Christian people, we think about the three and a half years of ministry, but this is early. This is very early in his ministry. And so this is kind of the stirring of the water, so to speak. And, and people are now starting to say, something is going on here. Something out of the ordinary. This is, there's never been anything like this. And you can begin to imagine as, as a people who have been looking for a Messiah, what, what, the, what the thought is, hey, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the one who we've been looking for and waiting for for such a long time. And so as we think about that, we, his actions result in fame and the consensus that God is there doing something. And besides these amazing feats and powerful messages, I want you to consider with me, the, as we're thinking about this idea of Jesus' fame, I want you to consider with me the oppression of these people. So sometimes we just think of the, you know, this, this exterior stuff, but there's stuff going on under the surface. And there are two things that are happening in the lives of the people as we're thinking about them and, and this initial, if you would, kind of the groundbreaking aspects of Jesus' ministry. So you have the outside power, so to speak, of Rome that has stepped into the lives of these people and have overflowed their, their, their country, so to speak, and have brought oppression to them. So you've got a, a foreign power that has invaded them, who has brought, a, if you would, the heavy boot down upon their neck. Uh, they've got finances that are being extracted from them. They're everywhere they look. They see these Roman soldiers who are bringing, if you would, violation to their, to their culture and to who they are as a people. And so they're oppressed by that, that aspect of it. You know, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know about you, but as I'm looking at the change in our culture, there's a lot of things I don't like about the change that's happening in our culture. But one of the things we can still say, at least right now, we're still free. We're not, we're, there are not foreign powers here telling us what we're going to do. They, there, there may be some influences that are going on, but I'm just simply saying, can you imagine if we were invaded and the foreign powers were there? And so these folks were dealing with that. So you have that force. And then we have the other side of it, which is the, you have a, a, a physical, political force. And then you have a spiritual force, which of course is their own spiritual leadership in what we call Judaism. And the, these Jewish leaders, they're power hungry and their traditions make life harsh for the average Jew living in Israel. And the impression is that the religious crowd, uh, they leave with these people that God is harsh. That, that God is, is unreasonable. That he, and they, and they, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of these people. So you've got those two factors going on. This political force and this religious force. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And the impression that you get as you read this passage is that, that he's sending a completely different message. That he, he is saying that he is here, that this power is here, and it's not a harsh power. Jesus, think about this, he, he's helping the hurting. He's healing the sick. He's encouraging everyone there that, that is open to him. There, there's this approachability, if you would, about Jesus. And I'm, I'm just simply saying, there's, you, you have to begin to think about the forces that are at play and begin to understand what he's doing here. And as a result of that, you can begin to understand when Mark chapter 1, the end of it speaks of his great ability to speak and to heal. So, of course, with that kind of ministry, look at again at chapter 2. And as he's entered into Capernaum, after sometimes, notice the phrase, it was noise that he was in the house. And notice what happens in verse number two. And straightway many were gathered together in so much there was no, there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So of course, when you think about what's going on, you think about what he's doing, 
man, when Jesus shows up, of course people are going to be excited about that. Of course they're going to gather. And of course they're going to come and, 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 and you know, fill a house where he is. I want to say to you tonight, if we could just make a just brief application, it's a shame that too many churches, we find extremes today. And when I say extremes, I, I feel like, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying that every church is like this, but there, there are extremes. There are two ends of the spectrum, it seems like, in, in many places. You have what I call dead orthodoxy. In the realm of Christianity, there are just people who say, well, you know, hey, Christianity is just kind of, it's just tradition. It's just the things that we do. And you go to church and there's no freshness, there's no the life there. It's just dead orthodoxy. Nobody gets, you know, if they're even preaching the gospel, nobody's going to get saved. And if they got a baptistry, nobody's getting baptized. And it's just, you think to yourself, if, if this continues to go on, this church will cease to exist. And, you know, we're seeing churches across the country where doors are being closed because people are just, it's just, there's just no life there. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where we have today in Christianity, what I call the new type of Christianity, where churches have over, if I can use the term, over-contextualized the culture. And what I mean by that is that they brought the culture into the church so much so that it's very hard to distinguish between a church, what's going on in a church, and what's going on in the world. So you, you have these rock concerts that take place in churches today and, and churches basically an hour worth of music and a, and the guy will get up for a few moments and he'll, and maybe he'll spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes bringing a, a kind of a little, you know, pep talk, so to speak, to the folks. And, and, and there may be some external excitement because of all that's going on, but really there's really, you know, what we call really life change where Christians are becoming strong disciples. That's not happening either. But I want to say to you that, hey, it doesn't have to be one extreme or the other. We can have a biblical type of Christianity where Jesus is in the house, where uh, we can we can preach the word of God and, and, and where we can honor God with our lives. And, and I just have to tell you, it's so refreshing to see Christians who come together and they have this hunger, so to speak, for the things of God. And by the way, you know, when Jesus is in the house, it's because the, the preacher has studied, he's got something from God, and he's excited about delivering it, and it's because the people have come to receive it. And I want to tell you, there's, there's a dynamic about that. And you need to pray, pray for your pastor on a regular basis that God help him to always have a message from God. But let me just simply say, it's not just about him, it's about you as well. We need to come with an excitement and a, and, and a desire saying, God, I, I want to meet with you today. I want, I, I know that I, I walk with you and I know you're part of my life and I know that you're, you're never removed from me if I'm a Christian. He lives with me. But there is something about the meeting of the church. There's something about where there's, where Christians come together. And I'm saying to you tonight that it's a shame that we don't have that balance in, in, in many places. And I'm thankful for places that do have the balance. And, and I'm just simply saying we need to ask God to, to meet with us so that the entire city of Sydney, Ohio, knows that God is doing something here at Grace Baptist Church. And God help us to be those kind of people. So this crowd is attracted because of, of Jesus, who he was, and, and what he was doing. Would you notice that in verses 3 through 5? I see what I call the faith of the five. In verse number three, it says, and they came. These folks come. The Bible says, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So you have a man on a cot, so to speak, and four guys that are carrying that cot. They're bringing him to Jesus. Verse number four, and when they could not come nigh to him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So we're introduced to these five men who, can I say this, have a sense of desperation to get someone to Jesus. 
So we think about this man on this mat or cot or pallet, whatever you want to call it. And he's unable to physically get himself to Jesus because of his infirmity. The Bible says he has the palsy. He's paralyzed and can't get himself anywhere. He's dependent on people to do everything for him. You know, we, uh, I would never minimize the fact that someone has an injury today that would keep them from being able to walk, uh, to do some of the things that we just so take for granted. I don't know about you, but I got up this morning and didn't think about getting up and walking. I just did it because that's just what we are. That's, you take things for granted when you do it all the time. And of course, people get injuries, whether it's an accident or, or, or a disease, but it, uh, they lose the ability to, to be able to, to walk. To, and, and, but we do live in a time in which, of course, through modern technology, people can do things uh, themselves. I, I, we have a man in our church who has uh, uh, MS, and it has progressed to the point that he's no longer able to walk. But uh, he was taught how to transfer himself from his bed into his chair and how to roll his chair into a, into a, a shower to take his own shower and, and to take care of himself. So, again, I'm, I'm minimizing the fact that he's got this disease, but I'm saying in our day and age, there, there are at least ways that we can begin to, to, to deal with it. But in this situation, this guy's dependent upon everybody. You know, I, I don't know. Again, you, we begin to start to think about some of these things, and sometimes we don't realize how blessed we are. My, uh, my mother, I mentioned this morning in the class again, is 92. And uh, recently, she, she's always been this very dependent person. If you met my mother, she's like a little firecracker. She's about five foot two, but I mean, she's like a stick of dynamite, man. She, she's determined to do something, get out of her way. Well, because she lives with us and because of just circumstances there, we've just been seeing some diminishing in her health. And I've had to say to her, Mother, give me your keys. Because up till... December last year, she was driving her own automobile. And when she wanted to go someplace, she got in her car and she went. She wanted to go shopping, she went. If she wanted to go to the doctor, she went. You know, she she didn't need my help. But because of the diminishing of her physical abilities, I've had to say, give me your keys. And now it's very difficult for her to say, I need to go to the store. Will you take me to the store? I, I, I need to schedule a doctor's appointment. Are you going to be home or is Denise going to be home? Can, they t- can you take me to the doctor? And, of course, we do everything within our power. But I, I understand the losing of that. So here's a man. Think about this. Here's a man in our text who has no ability to help himself other than if he, if he has, if he, if he, if he's not a, a quadriplegic, he's a paraplegic, and maybe he can crawl around or pull himself, but he can't go great distances. So he's dependent upon these men. And so, uh, again, whoever initiates this idea of getting this palsy man to Jesus, we're not told whether it was the man himself or his friends, but someone had heard about this man by the name of Jesus who was doing some great miracles and others have been healed. And so this fame that we talked about a few moments ago now has, if you would, has trickled across the landscape. And here's a man whose life is, if you would, miserable. And he's saying, you know, if someone could help me, if I could somehow regain or get access to the fact that I would not have to wait on someone else and I could be healed, that would be a marvelous thing. So these friends bring this man to Jesus. They bring their loved one to Jesus. And and again, the Bible is very clear that he's there. And so there's a, there's a sense, though, if you would, of desperation because... Uh, they understand if they can get this man to Jesus, his life can be changed. We recently have seen what desperation looks like as a nation. I don't know about you, but what transpired in Afghanistan about two months ago was life-changing for me. And I saw those people in a tarmac, and 
I thought to myself, how desperate are you? That when an airplane is getting ready to take off, men cling to the landing gear thinking, man, if there's some way that I can get out of this, if I, if I would, this torture, I know that's coming. If I could somehow get out of here, I'll do whatever is necessary. And we watch people fall to their deaths just trying to escape. That's, that's desperation. And I, and I sense in this story there's some desperation here. These, these men, the, the, the text is clear, these men pick up this, their friend and they carry him to where Jesus is. Now think about this, when they arrive, they get, they get there and the Bible's clear that the, the house is so full, you, you can't even get in the door. I mean, it's not only full, but it's overflowing. The, the house is, there's no way to get into the presence of Jesus in a normal situation. These men refuse just to walk away. It's interesting as you look at the text. It's not like I said, well, we tried. We're just, you know, it's not obviously not going to happen today. Maybe, maybe next week. And maybe at some other time. No, no, the, no, the Bible's clear here, isn't it, in the text, is that, that these men said, you know what, we can't get in the normal way, but maybe there's another way. And the Bible says they went up on the roof and they began to, if you would, to peel away the roofing and the tiling of the house and, and opening up this opening Right in the middle of, of where Jesus is, and they let down this this man on this mat in front of Jesus. And I, I think it's interesting that Jesus isn't upset when they mess up his message. Now, I don't know about you. I, I I'm sometimes I can let little things in when I'm preaching bother me. I see something going on and, and and can be distracted by that. Can you imagine Jesus there preaching away, and all of a sudden the the tiles and the roof begin to be peeled away and. You can imagine stuff falling down from the ceiling as it's falling down and filtering down on the congregation. People are looking up while Jesus is trying to speak. And all of a sudden, you, and just seeing an opening, now you see a guy coming down through the roof to the floor in front of Jesus. And it's amazing to me. Jesus didn't say, what are you guys doing messing up my sermon? No, no. Uh, the Bible says that when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus isn't upset. He, he saw When he saw their faith, what he's saying here, there's faith that's real. We sometimes think of it as being an intangible. Would you notice, please, in the text that faith, real faith, has tangibility to it. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, is the evidence of things unseen. We can talk about faith, but I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, real faith has some evidence. It's demonstrated in how we live. It's demonstrated by well, not just what we believe, but it becomes visible to other folks who see it. We think about the lost that around us, they could be neighbors, family, or friends, but most of them, think about this, most of them will never get to Jesus without someone to help them. God, there's a reason Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say to the world, come into the church. He said to the church, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. As believers and followers of Jesus, we need to share our faith and to be witnesses. We should live in such a way that when the world looks at us, they say, you know, there's just something different about that family. There's just something different about that individual. There's just something different about that woman. In the workplace, they don't talk like the other people. They, they, they don't necessarily do the same things other people do. But there's an approachability there. There's a friendliness there. But, but there's a difference there in that life. Can I say to you that have children that are in this room, your children don't get to heaven. You know this, they don't get to heaven because they're born in your family. We don't believe that Christianity is passed along because of a physical birth. Christianity comes along because of a new birth. And I'm grateful for parents who lived in such a way in, in our home that we could literally see, they weren't perfect, don't get me wrong, but we could literally see Jesus in the lives of our parents. And I'm telling you that 
If you have children here, we were talking to some, a brother tonight as he was coming in and just said, I, I feel this pressure of, of, of helping my children to know Jesus and living a credible life uh, in front of that. And I'm telling you that, that that's so necessary. When we talk about children walking away from the faith, there's a reason they walk away from the faith. And I, I'm not saying that, 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 that it's always a parent's fault, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's because we're not living that credible life. We talk one way in church, but we live some way different in the in our house. And I'm just saying there needs to be some real faith that's demonstrated. You have parents, you have siblings that are lost. We're, we're going to share our faith with them. We're going to do what we can to get them to Jesus so they can be saved. We should care and have a burden for the lost in the world around us as this these men had for their friend. And notice if you would finally tonight what I call the focus of Jesus here in this passage in verses 6 through 10. I think it's interesting. These guys came looking for a physical healing, and and I understand that. But would you notice how Jesus responds in verse number 5? And when he saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. What these men did got the attention of our Savior. And he responds positively. And of course, I believe Jesus had a concern for this man's physical well-being. But he understood there's something greater than his physical well-being, which is his spiritual well-being. So Jesus says in verse number 5, this man's greatest need was not necessarily the, wasn't, wasn't the physical. His sins needed to be forgiven. And what you notice as Jesus makes that statement in verse number 5, it stirs a controversy. And the religious crowd took offense because they said, who is this guy? Now, again, this is early in Jesus' ministry, and, and, and so, you know, this is, a lot of this is just new. And so, he, I think Jesus has a little bit of patience with these folks at this moment. And so, in verse number 6, and there was a certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Now, think about this. They didn't say, speak these words audibly. It's just inward thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what you're thinking here tonight. I can't tell that. You know, sometimes you look at people and say, you know, I, I think I know what that person's thinking. They're mad about something, you know. But, but Jesus knew, Jesus knew exactly what these people were thinking. He, and, and so he, he brings that up to them in verse number 7, verse number 8. And immediately Jesus, when he perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to, unto them, why reason these things in your hearts? And so he, he's saying, look, you, you, you understand that while there's an element of this man's physical need, the greatest need that he has is his sins to be forgiven. And you question whether they have that ability to do that. And of course, you know, for him to speak those words at this point, he hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't conquered the grave. So, so they don't know that exactly who this is at this moment. And so he says, I want you to know that who this is. And, and so that you may know who this is, I know it, be, it may be easier to say thy sins be forgiven but I want, to know, I want you to know that I have the power to forgive sin. So I'm saying to this man, take up your bed and walk. And so the response of this man, and think about this, a, a bouncing, so to speak, or popping off, off of this mat. Now, now again, I, I suppose I, I, there are enough people in here that would know what I'm saying. I, you know, when I used to make hospital calls, we, we used to, when people were in the hospital a long time, we, they would develop what we call atrophy of muscles. And of course, you know, we get up every day and we use the muscles. We don't even think about the muscles we use just to get out of bed and, and to propel ourselves along. But if you don't lose, use your legs for a while, your muscles begin to deteriorate. They begin to fade away. We call it atrophy of the muscles. So here's a man who hasn't walked. 
And all of a sudden now he's receiving this healing. It's not like he has to go to a physical therapist and learn how to walk. No, no, the Bible says he gets up and he takes up his bed and he walks away. And, and I have to believe from what the text is saying, everybody in the place knows who this guy is. It's not like this is, you know, some guy from out of town and this is some kind of charade that's going on in a fake healing service someplace. No, no, everybody's aware this guy has not walked. We've seen him forever on this mat. We know he, he can't go along. And all of a sudden now, uh, Jesus speaks some words and says, hey, thy sins are forgiven, but that you know that his sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And away he goes. And I want to just point out to you from this text that while the physical part was important, please don't misunderstand, that was important to this man. But you know, Jesus could have healed this man and he's, but he's only got a, he's only got to live so long. He's only got a, a shelf life, right? We're, we're sitting here and I'm looking at folks at different ages and, and, you know, we're, we're at different points in our life and sometimes, you know, we just think of the general aspects of our life and how long people live and, you know, and I've, I've, from just a general thought, I've got a whole lot more behind me than I have ahead of me if I'm going to live just a normal life. I don't know. I don't know how much time I have. I could, I could die tonight. I could die tomorrow. I, I'm just simply saying, but we're only going to live so long in this life. And no matter how good you live in this life, it doesn't, it does matter. But even more important than that is to know that when this life is over with, you're going someplace that's much better. And Jesus said, I want to deal with that part of it. I want this because of this man's faith, because he believes in who I am. This man, his sins are forgiven. And of course, we know no one gets saved without forgiveness, without repentance, without coming to a decision for Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible is very clear that Jesus came to fix the problems that men have. Romans chapter 4 talks about he was delivered for our offenses. 1 John chapter 2 says that he's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. That means that Jesus died on the cross and what he did is sufficient for every person who has ever sinned. He could forgive every sin. But people have to, they have to repent and they have to come to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Now that's where you and I come in. Because honestly, God has saved us because someone shared Christ with us, right? I got saved because a church planner came to Cleveland, Ohio and planted a church. And that impacted my parents who impacted me and that church planner impacted me. And if you're saved tonight, it's because somebody shared Christ with you. It'd be somebody cared enough to say, hey, you know, here's a gospel track, or would you come to church with me? Or, or maybe you were raised in a, in a Christian home, and at a point you understood your lost condition. I'm just simply saying, we're all here tonight because somebody shared Jesus with us. And our responsibility now is not just to hold that to ourselves, but to share with other people. And I said... We need to have this credible faith so that people see the reality of that in our lives. See, if I, if, I, if I get bent out of shape and lose my cool in the workplace or in a situation where my, my Christianity is really all that much on display, people say, well, you know, what's the difference? See, see I, I know, believe me, I know we, we can all blow it. I know we can all drop the ball from time to time. But, but I'm just saying God wants to work in us so that he can work through us. And so I'm here tonight to tell you about a, a place in this world that is so desperate for, for the light of the gospel to come. The people over in the 1041, they're not going to get saved unless somebody brings the gospel to them. Now, I, I know, I know the Bible talks about in the book of Romans that we're all accountable and we all have enough light you know, that we stand before God. God will say in, in judgment, I'm not, you're, you're lost, you, you don't have a savior. But 
Jesus has also commanded the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when I think about that, I'm thinking to myself, well, when I think about the statistics, most of the, most missionaries, and I'm not, look, I'm, I'm all for missionaries. Please don't get me wrong. But it seems like our focus has been on certain places in this world, and I know God calls people, and they're obeying his command. But there are dark places in this world that desperately need the gospel tonight. And I'm saying to this church that I believe God is opening up an opportunity in a in a window, so to speak, and the doors begin to open in these areas. And it's not going to happen unless somebody brings the gospel to them. They're like this man on the mat. They can't get to Jesus by themselves. It's going to take people who say, I'll come alongside and, and, and carry a part of this mat to get these folks there. Can I encourage you as, as God's people, you've got a tremendous responsibility in this community. Many of you work in the, in the work world. You're going to go there tomorrow. You'll rub shoulders with people that you work with on a regular basis. And many of you perhaps, no doubt, have been witnesses time and time again. Don't be discouraged. If people don't respond initially, don't be discouraged. Just keep being the witness that God wants you to be. Realizing those people can't get to Jesus by themselves. But would you also consider that beyond Sydney, Ohio, and beyond the walls, and beyond what you're already doing in the realm of missions, there's a world out there waiting for someone to bring the gospel to them. And that's not going to happen without churches like yours getting involved. So I want to encourage you about whatever God may do in your heart and your life, but let's pray. Let's pray for the world. Let's pray that God, in these last days before the coming of Jesus Christ, that God will make people effective in reaching a part of this world that, if you want to say it this way, are so spiritually dark. You don't, When you think about darkness, even the smallest amount of light makes a difference, doesn't it? And I'm telling you that I believe that God not want, doesn't want to bring a, a little bit of light to, to darkness. He wants to bring a floodlight to darkness. And we get to be a part of what God is doing in this world. So let me encourage you tonight. Let's think about this world. Let's think about what God is doing. Let's ask God to help us to be where we are, being the light that God wants us to be. Let's be one of those guys who take a hold of somebody's palate and help get them to Jesus. But let's also think about a part of the world that needs help as well. Would you bow your heads together with me in prayer tonight? Thank you so much for allowing me to preach. Father, thank you for this church, and I, I pray, Father, that you would bless them. Lord, the, the world is a desperate place tonight, so needy. And Father, we as your people, we get to do and be, Lord, a, a witness, someone who can help someone who can't get to Jesus by themselves. Lord, I pray that you would Help all of us in this room. Lord, help me. I, I need to have a greater burden for the lost around me. And Lord, I pray for this very dark part of our world. I pray tonight, Lord, for places where people could live their whole life, live and die, and never one time have anybody tell them about Jesus. Lord, I, I don't believe that's the way you want it to stay. So, Lord, help us take advantage of the opportunities that you give to us.